Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend and Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Shabbat, Kuf Yud Aleph, 111. Really, we're getting there to the end. I feel it. We're going to have to start planning that see soon. <laughs> so our daf today begins with a discussion that actually starts on the page before on Kuf Yud, which was talking about uh, something that somebody would drink uh, that could cause, uh, you know, them to be sterile. And, you know, there's a question whether or not you can drink such a, um, could you, you know, drink such a substance? Is a person allowed to basically, you know, castrate themselves? Um, and so I'm going to actually start, you know, with that discussion there um, and then, you know, read wh- where it applies to uh, with our Gemara, with our DAF today. So the Gemara starts and says the following. Um so for healing jaundice, okay, you can make this thing uh, that is uh, comprises of different ingredients, um, which is uh, some type of like Alexandrian sap um, and alum and saffron, and you mix it with with beer and umiakar, right from the word akara, right? It would, like, you know, a woman who's barren, it will make uh, the patient sterile. So the Gemara goes on and says, Umishari, is this allowed? Are you allowed to drink such a potion? Fahatanya, and it quotes a Brisa, From where do we know that castration is forbidden in a person? Talmud Lomar, so they're going to learn this from a Pasuk uh, that is in Vayikra, Perk Chavbet, Pasuk Chavdalet, chapter 22, verse 24, which reads, Okay. In your land, you shall not do this. Um, that you uh, you would shouldn't castrate an animal is what the actual pasuk is talking about there. Bachem lo tasu, right? So it should not be done to you. Um, that's how they sort of that's how they interpret that. Ba'artzachem, right? The bachem, your your land lo tasu. So it's not just that you can't castrate your animals; you can't castrate yourselves. Dibre Rabbi Chanina. This is what Rabbi Chanina says. The Gemara continues. It says, "Hani mile hechad dekam nekabe." So this, this, uh, these words here uh, that talk about, uh, you know, not castrating yourself, okay, or somebody, you know, intends to, um, that this is where somebody intends to actually do some type of damage to themselves. But here, the one where we're talking about in our, uh, in our Mishnah here, here it's where it just, it occurs by itself. In other words, you happen to drink a potion that happens to cause you uh, to be sterile, but it's not because you tried to make yourself um, sterile. Gemara goes on to Amar Rabbi Yochanan because Rabbi Yochanan says, "Harotza she yisras tarnagol." Somebody wants to castrate a rooster, you tol a karbalato, you remove its crest, umista reis me'alav, and it becomes castrated by itself. So, in other words, you're not castrating the animal directly; you just remove its crest. However, the Gemara says, "Va'amar Rav Ashi remut rochahi dinikitale." Right, that a rooster is has like some type of arrogance, right? That its source of pride, I guess, would be is that it has this crest. And therefore, what happens is, is that when you take the crest off, it's not really that it's sterile, but it's more it doesn't have its power anymore. And so it's just not going to um, mate with another animal. All right. So then the Gemara goes on and says, so, so again, so they can't use this as a proof that indirect castration is allowed. So rather what? We're talking to somebody who's already castrated. So in other words, what this needs to be talking about, this Mishnah, that you can drink this potion, right? That 
when you're it's for somebody who's already is is already sterile they're already castrated so the gemara is going to reject this as well the i'm a rabbi chia bar abba i'm a rabbi yochanan now we get to our actual uh to our actual daf hakol modim everybody agrees that if somebody processed 11 uh korban mincha okay after it's already been processed so here they're talking about a different case which is that there were this this mincha which was basically a flower, uh, a, a flower offering that was given the Beit Hamikdash, and it is not allowed to be chametz, which is a very interesting thing. And so the question is: Let's say you had this mincha that already was leavened, that already was chametz, and then you sort of made it more chametz afterwards, right? So here, what it would mean is what the commentaries explain is is that you know it became chametz, but then you needed it afterwards. So what happened? You're still chayev. So even though it already was chametz and not allowed, you really weren't allowed to bring it on the, you know, as a korban, you couldn't put it on the altar itself. Even if you do something to it afterwards, right? Even though it already was asur, okay? You, but you're still doing the process that makes it like 11 dough, um, you still would be chayev. You still did something that was asur. And how do they know this? And Amar, and so now they're going to quote a pasuk. Um, and this is a pasuk in Vayikra, Perak Vav, Pasuk Yud, uh, chapter 6, verse 10, that says, Lo chametz, you cannot make chametz. Um, and then it's stated later on, well, earlier in Vayikra, Perak Bet, Pasuk Yud Alv, in chapter 2, verse 18. Um, it, it also says there, Lo chametz. So we have in two cases um, where it says, um, and basically what they learn from there is because it's talking about two different contexts that it has to do with every step that would make something chametz. This is a big digression from what we're actually talking about. But now we get back to the castration here. So now it says everyone also agrees that you, if you castrate a person after they've already been castrated, you're chayav for that. And how do they know this? And now they're going to quote a passage from Vayikra. Uh, which is the the pasuk that we uh, quoted before in Parak Chavet pasuk Chavdalit, uh, right? Um, and there it says they're quoting the other part of it. Uma right? You're not allowed to squeeze, crush, or detach, or cut the testicles. Im al So if you're liable for you know for testicles that are cut, al natuk lo kol Should it not even be more so for testicles? that are detached. In other words, what they're basically saying is why did the Torah have to enumerate all of these different ways of castration, squeezing, crushing, detaching, or cut? So it's saying, So what it's teaching us is that if somebody detaches the testicle after they were cut, you're liable, right? So in other words, what you could do to castrate is, is that you just, um, now we get into an anatomy lesson, right? You just cut like the van, the van stephens, right? The 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 sort of the the tube that brings uh you know that that takes the semen out. Um, but here it would be that you would actually like cut it out. You would actually remove it. And so the point of them enumerating all that in the pasuk is to say, even if somebody's castrated, if you do another element of castration, you still are going to be chayav. So now we're going to have another answer, right? So we're going to say, who's allowed to drink this potion? The elabizakain. So it should be allowed to be an old man, right? Somebody who no longer is allowed to have children. Now, I found this to be interesting because we actually know physiologically, unlike women, men 
can sort of have children their entire life. But I'm a Rabbi Yochanan. So Rabbi Yochanan says, Hain, hain, hachazruni, lina'ruti. So we said that Rabbi Yochanan once said about a different cure for something else. Um, and this is a Gemara that appears in Gittin and Dap uh, on, on 70A, um, where he says, this treatment returned me to my youth. It made me, uh, it, it made me, you know, it made me uh, basically, uh, th- the understanding is, is that he might have been impotent. And then he, he took something and it made him, you know, I guess as vigorous as he was in his youth. So they're going to say no. So it can't be that it's that you can give this potion to an older man because we know that an older man actually is capable of reproduction. Ella Bisha. So let's say that it's about a woman. So we have now we're going to quote Rabbi Yochanan ben Bukra, who says in a Mishnah, regarding both of them, meaning Adam and Chava, the Pasuk says, uh, the Pasuk says the following. And here they're quoting a Pasuk. In Bereshit, when Adam and Chava are created, Perak Al Pasuk Chavchet, chapter 1, verse 28, Elokim, Lahem Elokim God blessed them, both of them, and said to them, Right, Puravu, be fruitful and multiply. My what is there to say? Right? It looks according to that Pasuk, both men and women are obligated to do this mitzvah of Puravu, of having children. And therefore, um, a woman would not be allowed to make her sterile. So therefore, the Gemara answers, Bizikena, we're talking about an old woman, right? Like, in other words, a woman who we know we can't bear children anymore, or a woman, a younger woman, not an older woman, but a younger woman who we know cannot have children. Um, so I just thought this whole back and forth, you know, I think these are interesting commentaries of the Gemara on a Mishnah. The Mishnah you know, really just says flat out that you can take this thing, even though it can cause sterility. And they here we sort of see where the Gemara sort of really needs to sort of bend over backwards to figure out a way be, uh, to sort of understand this Mishnah, even though there's no language in the Mishnah that would indicate that it was talking about one very narrow specific case of a specific type of person, right, the Zikena or the Akara, who took this potion. Um, and I'm never quite sure what to do with these types of Gemaras. And I think in a way what they're trying, you know, this is an example where I think sometimes we see the Gemaras very willing to say, like, there's two different, mis- you know, this Mishnah doesn't agree with another Mishnah because really you had two Tanas who understood something differently or two Amoras understood something differently. And it's kind of OK to hold two different opinions. And here I think we see a totally different technique which is we're not going to get into saying that there's a multitude of opinions, but rather we're going to say that the case that the mission was describing was like this super duper narrow case, which is completely not evident from the shot of the Mishnah itself. And I always find these to be uh, very interesting. Furthermore, um, the idea that women are also obligated in Pru Revu, I found that to be interesting. And Anne, maybe you can comment on this. I always was taught like sort of the high school version of that is, is that women are not obligated to pru revu because childbirth is dangerous to women. So it's a commandment on men, but it's not a commandment on women. Um, maybe that's different than, you know, saying that a woman could take something to, uh, you know, make herself sterile. Uh, but I also thought that was just an interesting interpretation about the mitzvah of pru revu as well here. So I'll comment on that first. And then I actually want to say something else. Um, 
I think that's true. I mean, I think that the the conclusion, I think the psak is that women are not obligated in Peruville for ex- exactly this reason, that there is danger to women in childbirth. I've actually heard now and again some rabbi, you know, miscellaneous people claim that, no, no, it's no longer an issue because, you know, childbirth is now relatively safe, except for they don't say relatively safe, they just say safe. And every time I feel like all the women around go like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, there's still, there's still vast concerns like just because mortality is not the issue the way it once was thank god right a medical advancement prevent that that does not mean that there's no you know concern and to to consider that you know whatever there's all kinds of conditions that can make that can make childbirth deadly for a woman even with modernity so so i wouldn't back off that rationale too fast and i think that you're to answer your question i think that the re- that the giving that is the reason is necessary because the assumption would be that they are equally obligated, right? They they are equal participants. I mean, you know, both parties are necessary to bear children, right? To have children, so you would think that they're and, and it's in it's in a rabbim. It's a it's a plural verb. So you would think that it's incumbent upon both men and women. And then we have an explanation that say no, 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 the women are not obligated, as opposed to saying, right? Like you wouldn't need to say that. If it was obvious that women wouldn't be obligated. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. No, I think that's a totally fair explanation of that. Okay. So now I have a question for you, which is, you know, the Gemara jumps through all these hoops to come to this narrow case. And I think that sometimes when the Gemara is doing that, it's, it's basically setting itself as a corrective for the Mishnah. And I'm wondering if in this case, that might be the case. Namely, here's my question for your, you know, in your physician hat. Um, is it possible that some kind of potion could actually make a person permanently sterile? Man or woman? Yes, we know that. What was that drug that women took for nausea in the 60s, right? That then their children, I mean, wasn't directly on the women? Yes, I think there is. I can't think of one on the top of my head, but yes. Okay, so that's already interesting, right? Because I'm I'm listening, you know, I'm I'm paying attention to this stuff. I'm thinking, I have to think well, about like, it. I can't think of one now, but I, I think I, there's I, all kinds of things that would cause miscarriage. But like we know that, right? Lots of things could cause miscarriage. All kinds of herbs and and you know, we know this from um, what's it called? All the like aromatherapy and the and the oils, right? The essential oils. We know that certain things taken in the wrong measure or in the wrong manner can be very damaging to the body, but. I was curious if it could call, cause lasting sterility. Okay, if it can, then I withdraw the, the subsequent questions, except for I think I wonder if that isn't part of what the Gemara is trying to get I'm at. I'm going to guess it's more for men than for women, just from like, I, I'm just thinking this out medically in my head because you, Anne did not have me prepare this question. She just, this was a <laughs> just generated sprung it on you through our conversation. No, I think for sure for men, that is true. I understand what you say, right? For women, it's more like you take something and a God forbid, could cause miscarriage, but yes, something to think even, about. And, and look I, could mess up, I can imagine it could mess up a woman's cycle, let's say, but, but right. that's short term. Right. Like anabolic steroids can do that. Okay. But that, like, again, then we, right, right. And then if you go off of them, does your virility come back? Does the man? I believe so. Yes. I, I believe, believe so. so. So again, I'm no doctor here, but I'm just curious about I'm curious about the reality, not because I think that Chazal needed to know the reality, but because I'm wondering if by limiting the case, they're limiting the case because they want to say that a man who does anything to limit his, his virility is 
in violation of the halacha. And I'm wondering if there isn't another component part, which is that maybe it wasn't actually limiting their virility all that much. I'm just right. curious about that. You know, which in which case then the more you can limit it, the less you have to address it in reality because those cases aren't really here, right? And now we only have just this one case of the older woman who isn't, a, you know, who can't have a child to begin with. Um, okay, let's jump in now to the next Mishnah, right? We're beginning the new Mishnah here on this page. And it also has some interesting, um, you know, I don't know if we call it medicine, but, you know, this kind, the same kind of remedy type of issue. If somebody has pain in their teeth, and I'm not sure if this means teeth or gums, but it says teeth, shinav. This person should not sip vinegar through those same teeth. So if you're taking vinegar, to make your mouth feel better, don't do that on Shabbos. That's simply for medicinal purposes. But if you always used vinegar, you dipped your food in vinegar, it was a, um, a condiment, so to speak, well, then you can do that. Then you can do it kedarko, however he usually would do. The aim nitrape, and if he also, like along the lines of the way that he's eating normally, is also healed, so he's healed, so that's fine. Hachoshesh b'matnav v'loya suchiyayin v'chometz. So somebody who has pain, we're gonna. It's bamotnav is generally translated as loins. I don't know exactly the precision here, right? I don't. This is a very whatever. I, it's not the most precise term. Um, but somebody who has pain, lo, he should not use wine or vinegar as some kind of ointment to alleviate the pain. But avalsachu et hashemen, he could use oil to I guess to soothe it to ease to ease the the distress. Velo shemen verid, but he should not use rose water, right? Because why? Rose water is very expensive. So it says but so rose water is very expensive. So you would only then use it really as a curative. You would not use it as a food ornament. A food um What's the word I'm looking for? To spice up your food. There's a better word for this. Anyway, I'm sorry. It's late in Israel right now. Um, in any case, my point is that the, the Mishnah here says, however, the princes would indeed use rose water because, again, this is the wealthy class, and they did use the same kind of item as part of their regular food, even on non-Shabbos days. So they could use it to ease whatever ailment on Shabbat as well. And I, I particularly like this because it's like, let's make sure that we've explored all the parameters of the case to make sure that we're even talking about princes, even though I like there aren't actual princes to be addressing here. Certainly there's a wealthy class, but to, to say the prince of the land, it, that wouldn't, there's nobody specific being referred to here. And then this is like even better. Rabbi Shimon comes and says, what are you talking about? All of B'nai Israel are princes. And Therefore, right, therefore, B'nai Israel can use rose water on Shabbos because we are of the princely class. Never mind the reality of whether people are actually spending their money on this for anything other than medicinal purposes, which I find to be like this very glorious statement about B'nai Israel and completely ignoring what the rest of the mission is taking a very practical approach. Um, yeah, yeah this tidbit, this tidbit of Rabbi, you know, of Rabbi Shimon at the end is just really 
it doesn't sound like it could be a real halacha. Like he actually really paskin that way. But, you know, he did. There's something lovely about it, but also something about it that seems just so, you know, like it just doesn't seem like it could be it could be a real opinion. I, it, I'm sorry to say that. Well, what's very I, well, interesting no, here. I think the deeper I would let me take that back. I think the deeper principle here is, is that really what Rabbi Shimon is saying is we don't distinguish between Jews. Like we're not making a distinction because the truth is then you could go and, you know, the it's I think there's something about halacha do not do, like halacha. I think this is sort of the where halacha is democratic in a way. Right. It's uh, it doesn't distinguish between people. What's true for a prince is going to be true for for somebody who's poor. And the Gemara Paskins like Rabbi Shimon. Yes. And the Gemara Paskins that because I think they realize going down that path, if you create a halacha based on status, that I, I think that actually undermines the halachic system. Also, and then, and in the Devarsov, at what point do you say, at what point do you say like, okay, this level of, of the economic standing will use this food all during the week, but these people would never do that because they don't have the money for that. So what? So pasta is okay, but, you know, whole grain bread is too fancy, right? Like the, the levels of gradation become too minute. Even if maybe Rosewater was an exception, I like Rabbi Shimon's position. It's it's just really heartwarming, you know. There's so much infighting. Then and hear this statement like, "No, everybody's a prince. You could use right. Rosewater with with a real halachic psak here, you know." Um, and I would ask again here, perhaps you know better than I. Um, do people use vinegar to ease um, a mouth ailment, a teeth or gum hurting? Do people well, use I rose actually water thought, in this way? So, well, the one thing about the vinegar that I thought was interesting is, is that, you know, because it said like vinegar can loosen the teeth. That's the first discussion on the Gemara. But it says when there's an open wound, it heals it. And I think that gets back to something we talked about yesterday, that vinegar has a type of acid in it, which can be bacterial cytal that can actually kill bacteria. So I, to me, that was like a very interesting medicine piece that, it makes sense. If there's an actual open wound, like you're concerned about there being like a real infection, yes, that's when you would use vinegar to heal the teeth. Got it. I would think, and this is just based on nothing, I would think that vinegar would burn, right? I would think that if you're trying to soothe something, then maybe vinegar is not your best bet. But maybe I, I'm I don't think that. I've never soothe. tried. I think it's to, to prevent infection would be my guess. I don't okay. think that's true. You know, it's like when you, you know, uh, you know, clean a cutout with uh, peroxide, right? Like it, it hurts. Right. It doesn't, you know, but that, but that's what you do. So I think that's similar to what vinegar is doing there. It's interesting. So, I'm not, the mission doesn't say it, but I read it as a matter of soothing. And it seems that that's not the issue. I don't think so. Cause the, the way the Gemara gets into a discussion about that, if you take uh -huh, vinegar with regular right. teeth, it loosens it. And with a wound, I don't think it's soothing. I think it's actually, it, it, it it's really a treatment for something. Um, right, so okay. I think with that, we're going to conclude with uh, Perik Yudalit. I know Perik uh, Ted Buff starts on this DAP, but we'll begin our discussion of it tomorrow. Um, so that's our DAP for the day. Bring us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Um, let us know what you thought of this DAP and our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow's DAP, go and learn.